What's going on, family? My guest on this episode is Johnny Perez, the director of the U.S. Prison Program for the National Religious Campaign Against Torture, which is an organization committed to ending U.S.-sponsored torture, including the subject of this episode, solitary confinement. Johnny himself is formerly incarcerated, having 13 years of direct involvement with the criminal justice system, three of those years in solitary confinement, which is really, really hard to imagine. I love chatting with Johnny. He's articulate, he's kind, he's solutions-oriented, he has empathy for and is willing to work with everyone, including correctional officers, which is saying something considering the direct harm he experienced from people wearing the same uniform. I want to learn more about solitary confinement. What are we actually doing to people? Why are we doing it? What are the effects of doing it? And how can we end it? I'm so inspired by Johnny and really all the impacted leaders that I come across. To throw yourself into service after having dealt with so much trauma and fight for so many others that you could have easily left behind without anyone looking at you sideways. It's just special. I hope this finds you and yours healthy and safe. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Let's get into it. Johnny Perez, good morning. Thanks for joining me and making the time, man. No, absolutely. I really thank you, man. Thanks for having me. I want to dive into your work, but before I do, I want to make sure I have a clear grasp of what we're up against when we talk about solitary confinement. Can you give me the kind of layman's explanation of what solitary confinement is? I have this idea from the movies and, you know, certain stories you hear, but I want to make sure I fully understand what we're talking about. Yeah, that's a fair question. You know, solitary confinement is, is a mechanism by which prisons and different correctional institutions use to keep order and control of, of the facility. Um, so it, it's something that the facility takes upon itself to do instead of that it's not something that the judge sentences. Think of it as a jail within a jail, per se. You know, architecturally, if you walk in and you spread both of your arms, chances are you can touch both walls. The room is very small, six by nine in a lot of states. Wow. You're basically locked in all day, up to 23 hours a day, and practice and work up to 24 hours a day. Folks are not able to, you know, have uh, little to no meaningful human contact, no programs while they're there. There's no TV. There's no phone. There's no visits only once a week, showers twice a week. Your last meal is at 4 o'clock, and then the next meal is at 7 a.m., so you go over 12 hours, you know, without eating. I have a personal experience with solitary. I spent a total of three years in solitary confinement, the, the longest time at one time was 10 months, you know, for uh, smoking pot, as a matter of fact. You know, um, today and age, we, we live in a country where, you know, cannabis consumption has to be legalized, but people inside of the prison are still being sent to solitary there. Folks should think of it as like this coffin within a coffin, and then folks are there for a very long time, you know? How unique is the practice of solitary confinement to the United States? Is this done elsewhere? Yeah, so there, there are some other places that actually have solitary, and then there are places that don't have solitary. I'll tell you, America actually leads the world not only in incarceration, but also placing people in solitary confinement. You know, we represent half of the world's isolated prisoners. So if you think about every single person in the world who is in solitary or some solitary-like condition, um, the United States accounts for half of that. You know, and then we also account for 25% of the world's incarcerated population uh, versus just five percent of the like the world population. You know, as a country, we, we're leaders in a lot of different ways. We are a very privileged country, and, and we have a lot of resources. And 
But again, we are so archaic in a lot of other ways, including our, our the criminal punishment system that we have. How many people is that? I know total incarceration hovers around 2.3 million, which is this fucking absurd number. How many folks on any given day are in solitary confinement? So that's an interesting question because what we find is that there's a technical term for solitary confinement, right, where it's defined by corrections. You know, a lot right. of times it's just defined by, hey, like this space or this part of the facility is, you know, um, designated to be solitary confinement. And then what happens is you can be in a similar architectural condition, right, it's 23 hours a day, small space, you know, um, and then the department won't call it solitary. So because of the lack of transparency and accountability within the department, we have to rely on them for the numbers. And department showed time and time again that they can't be trusted when, when it comes to self-reporting numbers. So there's two ways to answer your question. By the department's definition, there's about 100,000 to 120,000 people across the country who are in these solitary spaces. You know, and then we would argue that it's a lot more folks than that since we know that DOC does not count, for example, protective custody or administrative segregation. They may not count, you know, behavior modification units or special housing units. When you say these other, like, protective custody, what does that mean? Yeah, so the big distinction is that solitary is supposed to be punitive, you know, for people who have broken rule violations within the prison, right? And we right. have a separate conversation about what those rules violations even are. You know, I've had... I've known people and have worked with people who've been in solitary for just having too many cents, for having cash, for having a cigarette. Protective custody, you know, which is similar to, is a form of administrative segregation. In the sense that you do not have to break a rule, just your mere presence creates a threat to the safety of in order of the facility. So what that means is that if you have been, you know, identified as a person who belongs to a gang per se, whether it's substantiated or not, you can be placed in solitary just for your mere presence. There are times when people who identify with the LGBTQI community are placed in solitary just because, you know, of their sexual identity and not because of any behavior that they actually did. Can you compare that solitary confinement, 23 hours a day, no programming, two meals, compared to if you're in the general population? What are you usually allowed to do that now has been taken away from you? Well, one of the major things is human contact and human interaction. You can walk out your home and walk by somebody and somebody doesn't say something. It's not going to mess up your day. They probably won't even think twice about it. But when the only person that you're coming in contact with doesn't even look at you, doesn't talk to you, sometimes it talks at you, right? There's other major differences like access to programs. Programs that are essential to your own well-being or programs that are essential to, you know, you making your parole board or early release. There are programs that you take just because you want to kill the monotony of the day. As you can imagine, every day is the same day in prison. Now, the, the catch is, is that there's mandatory programs that people who are incarcerated have to take in order to make their early releases. So while you're in solitary, you don't get to take those programs. So later on, most people are denied for their parole board. So you're literally, by, just by being in solitary, you might lose years of your life because you, you didn't get to certain programming. What would you say to proponents of such a intense type of punitive resource when they might say, because it's so punitive, we're able to control the population in a way we wouldn't be able to otherwise. Yeah. So what is the purpose of solitary? If the purpose of solitary is to change a person's behavior, then it's failed miserably. So mm. It's failed miserably in the sense that it damages people. People are actually more likely to commit violent acts once they're released, if they're there for violence. And then also for these folks, you know, people really need to understand that 
four out of five people who are placed in solitary confinement are there for minor offenses. Mm. We're talking about, like, if you add belt loops to your pants, you can get sent to solitary. If, you know, if you're in the wrong part of the prison, you can get sent to solitary. If you have someone else's legal work, you can get sent to solitary. If you have someone else's mail, you can get sent to solitary. It sounds so similar to what I hear about technical violations with parole and probation. You know, a lot of people think when someone violated their parole and probation, they, you know, got caught dealing drugs again or, or whatnot. And oftentimes it sounds so similar to what you're saying now is they violate some minor rule and then there's this overly punitive reaction to it. Totally. And just like in technical violations, you know, folks, you know, saying that not everyone who goes back to prison goes back to prison for breaking the, breaking the law. Mm. And then the same way that people, not everyone who goes to solitary goes there because they did something that is violent or, or even breaking the law or anything like that. It's, it's literally the, the department using this strong discretionary power to place almost whomever they want in solitary. For someone like myself that's never been in solitary confinement, I hear the word torture used a lot. And typically, a lot of folks think about things like waterboarding or you know pulling off your fingernails when they hear torture. But I've heard from many folks that solitary is one of the worst forms of torture. Can you explain what I may not fully understand about what it's like to be in solitary? Yeah. Uh, One, just by pure definition, the United Nations a few years ago deemed solitary confinement as torture. Juan Mendez, who was uh, the United Nations repertoire on torture at the time, and who himself was a solitary survivor in Argentina, substantiated that that 15 days is the point at which there's irreversible damage to the brain. And at that point, we can clearly say by international standards that it's torture. If your listeners can easily look up the Mandela rules. What kind of damage are, are we talking about? What does it do to the brain? Yeah, so I'm talking about increased incidence of violence, depression. If you already have some type of predisposed mental health concern, mental illness has been shown to exasperate it. You know, mm. There's also uh, people who've been in solitary confinement are actually more likely to die. And so there was a study released about three weeks ago that really showed that folks who experienced solitary had a higher mortality rate than the rest of the population. But I'll bring it down a little bit more. You know, I'll tell you this. The reason I wear glasses today is because for a ton of years of my life, I was not able to look further than six feet in front of me. The cell gets so cold that you have to try to go to sleep with all your clothes on, but you're only given one layer of clothes. You know, and the summer gets so hot that the walls start to sweat. You don't have anyone to talk to. You know, the human mind is interesting because if you don't have someone to talk to, you'll find yourself talking out loud, even without even knowing. I mean, we do that now, right? Someone was thinking in the shower. But in, in solitary, this is augmented times 10. And you get to a point where, where reality blends into, like, fiction. There, you know, right now, people are being quarantined. And some folks don't even remember what day it is. In solitary, sometimes you don't remember what month it is. Mm-hmm. And then you, when you do this repeatedly, repeatedly, over and over and over and over, exasperated with the fact that you don't have any type of uh, meaningful human contact. You know, I remember not hugging someone for, for years. I remember not looking at a tree or, or touching grass for years or smelling anything other than Lysol, which now is, like, triggered all over the place because of COVID-19 and Lysol. And then you release, and then you hold someone there for a year, two years, three years, four years. In my sense, the longest time was 10 months. Then you release them back into society and you say, hey, by the way, pick up the pieces, don't break the law again. And we have to ask ourselves a bigger question, right? Like, at what point does the punishment become worse than the crime? Because there is a question about accountability. How we treat others says more about us than it says about them. So if this is the mechanism by which we hope people change their behavior, then we failed miserably. Right. It does feel like, you know, in criminal justice reform in general, 
we haven't yet won the larger conversation with society on what the purpose of this whole exercise is at times. And I think you're right. If we if we constantly go back to the question or the goal of trying to produce healthy members of society so they can reintegrate, we're failing across the board. And this seems especially egregious. Yeah, failing miserably. And I'll say this, you know, which is sometimes an unpopular opinion coming from me as an advocate, but I also understand that corrections has a really difficult job, you know, dealing with, you know, the care, custody, and control of human beings, which, you know, by itself has a whole lot of loaded challenges there. You know, but I'll say that there's other systems around the world in which corrections have gotten it right. You know, we, we've, you know, seen some successes, a lot of successes in places like Norway, places like Sweden, a lot of places in Germany, where the person who's incarcerated is still seen as part of that society. The help and love that they receive while they're incarcerated stems from that because the population in society understands that this person, although incarcerated, is still part of this community and will fully return to this community. So Norway doesn't have solitary, you know, um, or they use it very, really, some places they have it really, really, really rare. And they look like college dorms and not like the institutional settings here in America. It seems to me that our conditions of confinement period across the board, the default being so poor is what then allows for the acceptance of solitary confinement because they feel like they need something punitive on top of something that's already incredibly punitive. Do you feel like one of the routes to eradicating solitary confinement is just improving conditions of confinement across the board? Yeah. We need to keep people from going, from being incarcerated in the first place. But we really won't be able to help people, you know, to keep from coming back unless we look at what their life is like while they're incarcerated. Almost two and a half million people were incarcerated, and we know that 95% of these people are coming back into our society. You know, I think the Vera Institute of Justice mentioned about 600,000 people return, you know, into society every year. You know, and we really don't still understand the ramifications of conditions of confinement on people in their, in their reentry. You see, it's not only solitary, right? It's also a lack of education. It's also or a lack of access to education. It's also this cultural violence. It's also racism. So you never really feel value while you're incarcerated. You never feel like you have any power when you're incarcerated. You never feel loved. You never feel like you have an identity. So I do think if we create environments while folks are incarcerated where they're able to not only invest in themselves, but that society is able to invest in them while they're there, then we will have a completely changed society than what we have now, specifically as it relates to the criminal justice system. I also wonder what type of people we're returning every day in these correctional officers that are essentially torturing folks throughout their workday and then coming home. What's your thoughts on the effect that these practices have on the people that are forced to apply them? That's a really good question, and I try to really always be balanced in my remarks. And I've had one-on-one direct conversations with officers. And the biggest takeaway is that mass incarceration is so insidious that, yes, it, it disproportionately impacts people inside the cell, but it also speaks out to people who work inside of these institutions and inside of these facilities. So you find, you know, person also have to have a higher incidence of suicide, higher incidence of intimate partner violence, higher incidences of alcoholism, higher incidences of suicide by gun. You know, and a lot of this can be directly connected to the hazards of their, of their work. And, and they, those who say that we can't hurt other people without also hurting ourselves in the process, which, you know, is something that I wish politicians would, would understand. You know, but I'll, I'll give you even more insight. I did 13 years in prison straight. From 2000 until 2013 that I was released, and I've been home now for six years. And I've 
I'm the type of time that I could, I've seen a correctional officer start on day one, very young, vibrant, uh, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to literally serve his community, and I get that. And then mm. I've seen the same correctional officers years later throughout my sentence, right, and you can see that the light has left their eyes. They're skinnier. They're not laughing anymore. And you can literally see it. It's almost as if life has been taken out of them as a direct result of the job. A lot of my advocacy has been around just improving conditions for both folks who live and work there. You can't really have a healthy one without the other since it's a smaller community within the community. I want to talk about your work and what's on the horizon for you guys and what you're pushing for. Can you talk a little bit about your organization and what's on the immediate agenda? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I work as director of U.S. prison programs for the National Religious Campaign Against Torture. And we're based out of D.C. membership organization of about 325 faith communities um, organizations and, and individuals who just come together around protecting the dignity, hope, you know, and humanity of people you know, across across the country, specifically those people who are most vulnerable, and, and this includes people who are incarcerated. I run the prisons program, which, you know, there's three components. There's education, you know, there's coalition work, and then there's capacity building. So we do a lot of public education with faith communities and people who've been directly impacted, raise the awareness about not only solitary confinement, but conditions across the board. The coalition work entails, you know, some of the groups I already mentioned, but also resourcing and supporting individual state campaigns. Right now we're working with 14 states across the country. Each state has an active legislative campaign to end the use of solitary confinement in their state. So we find ways to support them, and that looks different in different states, as you can imagine. And then the last piece is capacity building. We try to educate, train, and build the capacity of solitary survivors like myself and others, and also faith leaders. You know, we believe that those folks are best poised to lead a lot of the work, to have the best solutions, specifically because they've been impacted by it. But sometimes Mm -hmm. they may lack the organizing know-how or the political know-how since a lot of that information is lacking inside of prison. We try to give them that information and try to fill in gaps in their knowledge. And we've seen some successes. You know, New Jersey very recently ended solitary confinement. A lot of the solitary survivors there led that work. So certain states have ended it. New Jersey's ended. How many states have ended solitary confinement? Well, no state has ended it altogether. They've restricted it, and then some still have even more restrictions to be made. I'll give you some examples. In Connecticut, they they banned solitary for juveniles. Right? But they don't have caps on how long people can stay in solitary. I Other see. states have been the shackling of women while they're giving birth, but also placing them in solitary. You know, some states have been, like Nevada, for example, banned not putting people with mental health concerns in solitary. You know, but there's still other vulnerable populations that can be placed there and is not restricted by time. So you'll find people still there for years at a time. California was another one where they deemed solitary confinement unconstitutional and let folks out. But then now what we're seeing is that many of these people are actually in administrative segregation, which the department a lot of times doesn't, uh, doesn't count as – I mean, it's not punitive segregation, it's administrative segregation. And that's how the department is able to get around but still placing folks inside of these conditions. I know one of the hard things with prison reform in general is that there's prisons that are owned by the and operated by the state, there's prisons that are run by the county, and then there's federal prisons. Does the federal government have the power to eradicate it across the nation? Is there a power move you guys can make with the federal government that could eradicate it entirely, or do you all have to go state to state, county to county? So it's both. Um, so there are instances where, you know, like, for example, Obama banned solitary for juveniles when he was in office. And very recently, the First Step Act really kind of codified 
those changes on the federal level, which is only a very small percentage of our incarcerated population. You know, it's about 250,000 people, I believe. Out of 250,000 out, out of the 2.3 million, right? Yeah, it's like a really small number. So, so that's on the federal level, right? You know, and only concerning federal prisons. But because most of the people who are incarcerated in, in the United States are at the state level, we do have to do it state by state. Now, there is this relationship where the federal level can set precedent for states. We do see a lot of states actually really easily and very fast banning solitary for juveniles in a lot of different states, but where they still have to catch up in a lot of different ways, you know, with mental health concerns, placing mm-hmm. pregnant women in solitary, placing the elderly, placing people in there, you know, just because they're part of the LGBTQI community. So there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in a lot of different states. When you're fighting to pass these reforms, is there a alternative that you have found that you kind of have to clinch your jaw and offer up as a, well, look, this is better than solitary confinement. And I think these guys can come back to the table and say, yes, we can accept this as the alternative punitive practice. Yeah. So it's like this thing where, you know, you tell somebody what they're doing wrong. It's also helpful to tell them how to get it right. You know, we actually do have solutions, you know, and a lot of the bills that we're advocating for, they have language that allows the parties to create rehabilitation residential units as, a, as an alternative to incarceration. What that means is that people are still separated from the population if needed, right? Because there's, there's very real issues inside of prison. And sometimes where people do have to be separated, right, but they don't necessarily need to be isolated. So yeah. these units, what we're proposing is that people have seven hours out of their cell instead of the, just the one hour, right, that people have programming, right, which is anger behavior management, uh, substance abuse management, you know, all the other programs that people need access to while they're there, and then to also not place people in solitary for no more than 15 days or no more than 20 days in a 60-day period. And that last mm. piece has to go in there because what we found was that DOC would take someone out of their cell at the 15-day period and then put them back in two days later and have this person as perpetual short cycle so they don't technically break the law, but they're still damaging people. I imagine those are conversations that can be difficult because you're essentially advocating for restorative practices within a system that is punitive. Indeed, yeah. And that's the biggest challenge, especially with you know the misconceptions that without solitary that people are just going to run rampant, and that's just not true. We have too much evidence that shows that solitary does not decrease violence within institutions, and in some cases, probably more evidence that actually increases violence. It's challenging. What are you most excited about that's coming up for you guys? What do you think can be a game changer that's on the horizon? Yeah, I think that we're really close to a tipping point. We have seen, you know, like this year, last year alone, I say 78 pieces of legislation were passed, um, excuse me, were, were introduced around solitary confinement. Wow. We had eight states who actually passed some type of change, you know, and then we had like another 12 states passed like some partial changes where they excluded some people but not others, you know, and those advocates are going to come back to the table every year until we see the changes that, that we want to see. Do you have advice for folks? You have, unfortunately, like expertise in being confined. And we have a, over a billion people right now in the world facing confinement in some level. I wonder what your advice is for those people, myself included, on A, coping with it while you're dealing with it. And then B, you know, you talked about how difficult reintegration can be. At some point, we're going to go back to doing at least some of the things we were doing. Can you talk about both those things, how to cope with it and then how to think about reintegration? The first piece of advice I would give folks is to 
very quickly differentiate and separate the things you can control from things that you can't control. And that is a hard pill to swallow because we like to control our environment and to feel like we can't control our environment. It's really difficult to let go. And that in itself leads a lot of the anxiety and frustration, even fear that a lot of us are feeling in this moment. So really differentiating what can I control and what can I not control. Second, quiet and, and silence can be loud for some people because we're left with our own thoughts. So try to find ways to quiet your mind, whether it's meditation, whether it's just quiet reflection, maybe even a journal. Try to find ways to quiet your mind because what happens is when your mind is not quiet, it feeds into the things that it can't control. And those two things are internal pieces. You know, the, the external pieces, you know, you should still follow the daily routine that you had pre-COVID days to the best extent possible. If you ate breakfast every morning, then you should still be eating breakfast any morning. You know, if you went to the gym at 6, 7 o'clock, yes, the gyms are closed, but go to the park. Don't find a way to get your workout in. That's great advice. What about reintegration when you think about everyone? Because we're all going through it, there's there's some solidarity that folks that are incarcerated don't have the same privilege of having when they return to society. So, so there's going to be some solidarity in the moment. What do you recommend as people reintegrate? I was thinking about this the other day. I was having a conversation with a friend about, you know, the fear that we've been, if we're quarantined too long, what does it look like when we actually are able to go out? And I don't think that it's going to be that easy to go back to the normal. I think that once we're released, per se, we're still going to be distrustful of people. We're not going to necessarily, we're still going to be want to be a little bit distant. But my advice is for folks to take their time. You know, when they throw the coronavirus parade, you know, we should not be going to crowds. Start very small. You know, start integrating first with your family. So being very mindful about just interacting with people too soon and just taking your time to come back in the same way that people in prison are advised to also take their time. I really appreciate your time, man, and, and sharing all this wisdom and advice. And I hope, you know, together we're able to get this thing across the line and, and get rid of solitary confinement finally. No, I really appreciate it, Alexander. Thank you, man, for, you know, for, for leveraging your platform to amplify the issue. You know, and I hope that people listen to this podcast and people take something away from it. But more importantly, I hope that they're motivated to act. You know, and I hope that once these quarantines are over, that people do find a new, a newfound um, appreciation for not only their own freedom, but also are able to empathize in so many different ways now with those of us who have been isolated for most of our lives. And they're going to continue to be isolated until we do something. So thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you. All right, bro. Love you. Stay Stay safe. I love you back, man. (laughs) Later. Take care. Bye. Thank you for joining me on What We Don't Know. If you liked what you heard, we post the full interviews on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. If you become a patron, you'll have access to those full interviews plus other exclusive content. 50% of the revenue that this podcast generates goes towards the initiatives and organizations of our guests. So you'll not only be supporting this podcast, but you'll also be supporting some amazing, amazing work. If you'd like to follow us on social, we're at WWDKpod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On YouTube, you can find our channel if you search What We Don't Know Podcast. And if you go to our website, www.dkpod.com, you can sign up for our newsletter where we share all the latest content. All right. Hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.